Ohio State remains undefeated after the bye week. Always a good feeling. A lot of interesting action in college football over the course of Ohio State's week off. And we bring in the scheme master himself, Professor Kyle Jones, to talk about the X's and O's of Ohio State's season at the midterm. All that and more in this edition of the 11 Dubcast. Andy Vance joining you with Johnny Ginner, as always, the erudite Johnny Ginner, who will later give us the latest about that team up north as he continues to do yeoman's work following Ohio State's hated rival. But I really want to start this program with the midterm report card for these Buckeyes from a schematic standpoint. And for that, we bring film study uh, author Kyle Jones. Kyle, let's start with, I think for me, the aspect of this team that I was most excited about this season, that was the revamp of Ohio State's defense under Jim Knowles. Spoiler alert, my take is that this has been an unqualified success. Am, am I being Pollyanna here, or has the reboot of this defense been as as good as I'm sort of selling it to be? Hey, guys. Well, first off, good to be back. Good to be on with you all. It's a, a pleasure, you, as always. Always always a pleasure. Also, very nice to be here on uh, a lovely bye week. We're not dissecting a corpse, as sometimes is the case. So I appreciate it. Yeah, wasn't um, it great? We didn't invite you to come in after <laughs> after something horrible. Oh happened. yeah, that's right. That's that was right. the most I popular time like to have you on the Dubcast. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not just you guys. To be fair, I about that. It's, everybody has me on after in the postmortems. You know, the ugly accident. Let's watch and, and break who, it down. Who do we so blame? What went by wrong? your shoulders? Like what happened? <laughs> right. So I want to thank you all for for first and first and foremost having me on to talk about positive things and transition the Ohio state defense has been a very positive thing to your point, Andy. And, you know, I think there's a little, the, the answer to your question of, are you being Pollyanna? Is it too soon to tell what can we take away? My answer, and you're going to hate this is it's somewhere in between. And I say that because I think they have yet to truly face the kind of tests that matter to Ohio state fans. Is this defense good enough to win a big 10 championship? Totally. That's not what big, that's not what Ohio state fans care about. You guys know that. I know that the question is, can it hang with any offense in the country? Is there an offense that's going to give it trouble? And the answer is possibly. And I say that because (laughs) (laughs) I I think there, there are questions at corner, but that's not actually the question that I'm most concerned about. I'm, I'm most concerned about what happens when they face a really physical downhill run game. Uh, that was really what gave this team fits last year, uh, pun intended, uh, given the run fits and their inability to have them last year and to execute them properly. Uh, they haven't faced a real run game that can do much of anything. Um, we've seen Notre Dame has struggled for a lot of reasons. Um, so there wasn't much in hindsight that we can take away from game one. You look through the rest of the, of the schedule thus far, Wisconsin – same story. Uh, Iowa this week, probably not going to tell us much. Penn State, probably not going to tell us much. I think this is one of the downfalls of conference play, when, especially when you don't um, – or, I mean, I, to be fair, I guess, to, to, to contradict myself as I'm saying it, you know, they did schedule a big non-conference game, but that team didn't really show up in the form we expected, right, right. in Notre Dame. And so all that's – to say like they just haven't really been tested in a way that I think can tell us for sure from a physical standpoint from a scheme standpoint and maybe this is what you really meant is it's totally different and and it's a breath of fresh air what Jim Knowles is doing if what Jim Knowles is doing and 
And we probably don't even have enough time for me to really get into the nitty gritty. And this requires a whiteboard and probably some Advil for most people. <laughs> it, you know, what he's doing schematically is really at the more at the forefront of where the game is going. And that does put a lot of pressure on the corners because the safeties are really involved with the run game. They're playing downhill, but they're mixing and matching responsibilities. A lot has been said by myself, by many others. Uh, you know, those three safeties back there, that's including the nickelback, they're really interchangeable in their roles. Uh, we've seen a lot of bodies back there due to injury, and I actually think that's a really good thing. Um, I think that has shown what these guys can do when you, you think about Lathan Ransom, Josh Proctor, in addition to Ronnie Hickman and Tanner McAllister, who might truly be the MVPs of this team. And I, I say that knowing that CJ Stroud is the odds on favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. What Ronnie Hickman and, and Tanner McAllister are doing for this defense are just as important to Ohio State's success as what CJ Stroud's doing. And I know that's hyperbolic, but I truly believe it because they're you, making everyone right. Go ahead. Oh, okay. So I want to, I want to interrupt you real quick because we, we on this show wax poetic about like what Eichenberg is doing and what steel chambers are doing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, can you explain why we should place more emphasis on guys like Hickman and Lathan Ransom? Because mm -hmm. I feel like that might be overlooked in the face of a trillion tackles a week. Yeah. Linebackers. So what they're doing in effect is they're making life really simple and easy for Eichenberg and Chambers. Um, I think what philosophically, and again, this, is, this might be a little bit more theoretical than what you're asking. In the past, Ohio State's defense, and this is going back the last you know, few years, it was about make the D-line the star, make their lives easy. We've got so much talent up on that D-line. We've got so much talent with the corners. Make their lives easy so that they can go win. And what that ended up doing was putting a lot of pressure on the linebackers to fix everything. And so if you were just going to say to Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett outside, hey, just go man up, just go play one-on-one -on -one and go ball out. And they did. And that's what they did to everybody, right? If it was Chase Young, just go get in the backfield, go create havoc. They did, you know, he did that. And other guys did that too. But what that meant was whoever was standing in the middle had to say, all right, well, if you're doing that, the, the offense might do four or five things and I've got to be prepared for all of them. Right. And so what's happened this year is they've said, we're going to make, we're going to put a little bit more on the D lines plate. You know, you've got guys like Zach Harrison, who is really doing a lot of dirty work really well. And I, I applaud him for that. Cause again, he had a lot of pressure on him, he had a lot of expectations, and a lot of fans probably feel like he hasn't lived up to them. And maybe he hasn't in the sense that he hasn't been a 12-sack guy, right, who just lines up on the edge and wins one-on-one. -on -one. But this year, what he's doing is really important, especially in the run defense, where he is holding up and attacking blockers and beating up blocking schemes in a way that if you watch Georgia's team last year, and even some of what they do this year, that's what made the Georgia defense so good last year is that D line. Yes. They had some studs they had Trayvon Walker, but if you remember all of the, the hubbub leading up to the NFL draft, how is Trayvon Walker going to be the number one pick? He only had a handful of sacks and it's because he did a lot of dirty work, right? That doesn't show up in a box score. And that's what this D line is doing. And the D line then is making it easy. So Tommy Eichenberg and seal chambers know, Hey, I'm playing downhill and I'm going to get that ball carrier whether it's a fake or not, it's an RPO, it's a play action. I don't care. I'm able to go make a play on that running back in the backfield. And that's different. Whereas before they had to be in two places at once. And the reason on the backside of that, 
they can go blitz and they can go pick up that a gap and really go after that running back on an RPO is because they know Ronnie Hickman and Tanner McAllister and Josh Proctor or Lathan Ransom or Cam Martinez or whoever's back there are going to protect it for him. Right. And that's the difference schematically. Whereas in, in the past, the safety, you know, you had one safety like Joel, Jordan Fuller stand 30 yards downfield in center field just to make the tackle if it got through. But now you've got Ronnie Hickman who does have run responsibility and also has pass responsibility at the same time. So he's got a ton on his plate every single play. He's got to be right in both the run and pass phases in ways that the linebackers don't necessarily have to be. They can, they can be uber aggressive against the run, and that's okay because those safeties are going to clean up for him. So it almost feels like the responsibilities have kind of like shifted back a level, if that makes sense. So yep. in other words, like, whereas you had the linebackers trying to clean everything up and, and and basically cover for the fact that the defensive line was just going hog wild to the quarterback or whoever. Now you've got safeties and kind of cover for both the linebackers. And then you've got, I guess, more gaps out. I don't know what the, I don't know what, I mean, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm just pulling this out of my butt, but the defensive line <laughs> is is not is they're playing more disciplined and they're allowing the linebackers to kind of like tee off a little bit more, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Would that so be accurate? I, I want, so I yes, but I wanna I wanna get in the weeds here for one second if that's okay. okay. Yes. Because it's not discipline. It's not necessarily that the D line in years past were doing things without discipline or they were you know just sure. freelancers all across because I think that is a distinction people people make. The difference is it was really a focus on penetration. And so that means, Hey, beat your guy. You've got the, the a gap, the B gap, whatever your gap is. Right. Get into the backfield. It's get in the backfield and get, you know, make a play, tackle the running back, tackle the quarterback, whoever it is, get in the backfield. And what that allows for is when the deep, the offense knows you're doing that, they can just say, great. We don't care that Zach Harrison's coming you know, straight up field on the left. Cause we're just handing the ball off to the right. So we don't even need to block it. Right. We care, you know, great. We're going to take advantage of that. And now what you're seeing is it's much more, uh, it's actually a pa- more passive in a way approach in the sense of, you know, they call block control, block destruction, where you're almost playing half speed, where you're going to come up field, but your your rules as a defensive lineman are, I'm not going any more than a yard deep. If I'm, if I'm a yard past the line of scrimmage, I'm too deep because I got to sit here and I got to diagnose. And really what I'm trying to do is actually engage that blocker or multiple blockers so that I'm holding things up and clogging up that line so that Tommy Eichenberg can just look for the running back and go make a tackle. And so I think it's, it's really unglamorous. It's the kind of stuff that I think, you know, if you watch the NFL in the 2000s and you had those big giant nose tackles like Vince Wilfork and Ted Washington and all those guys, and, you know, you'd go like, that guy's so fat. How is he, you know, he just must take up space. But that's really what they're asking a lot of these D linemen to do is just be big and clog the middle and let those linebackers flow to the ball and make plays. I wanted to ask about the cornerbacks. We'll come back to that in a minute because you've just given a, a segue to something I was I was wondering about when you talk about what we're asking those D linemen to do earlier. You were talking about the issue with potentially with downhill running, and I, I think we're going to talk about that team up north in a little bit who just had an insane weekend running the football against a Big Ten opponent, a top ten opponent. Uh, so looking at this team's 
ability to stop the run, you know, through six games. And with the caveat that the Buckeyes ain't played nobody yet, <laughs> it has appeared to me like it's damn difficult to run against this Ohio State defense. Is what you're seeing in terms of the the bones of the system and how guys are executing those rules that you just talked about, does that give you hope that they can stop uh, a, a solid downhill running team in a way that they were not able to a year ago? Totally. Totally. And I, I think the one piece we haven't discussed is how good Jim Knowles is at, at calling and recognizing, and this goes back to his scouting and preparation, uh, but calling run blitzes. And again, run blitzes, are not different from your, or they're not the same as your past blitzes, right? Where it's third and long and you're, you're trying to sack the quarterback. This is, we're trying to muck up your blocking scheme and we're going to add an extra body in a place that you really wish there wasn't an extra body. You're planning on blocking the linebacker four yards downfield. And now he's in the center's shoulder, right? The second that he snaps the ball. And that's what Knowles is doing really well to disrupt the offense. It's, it's really his philosophical, you know, take on everything that I want to play offense on defense. And, and, you know, that sounds cool and it's fun. It's like, yeah, that's awesome. I love aggressive D coordinators, blah, 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 blah. We all love that theory. But what that actually means is I don't care what you're trying to do. I think I know what you're trying to do. And my plan is not to just wait and be ready for it. My plan is to break it. My plan is to say, I don't care if you're pulling the left guard, I'm going to hit him before he ever gets to where he's going. And I'm going to disrupt this whole thing and create chaos in the backfield. And, he, and Knowles has done a great job of, of knowing when and where to call these blitzes. Um, he obviously has a small army and this, this can get, we can change topics and go into the, the arms race that is, you know, college football and the analysts and everything in Ohio state has very clearly invested in that sense so that they're scheming up and game planning for these opponents in ways that I have not seen in a very long time, if ever from Ohio state, at least on the defensive side of the ball. Um, and I think that's really important as you, you think about, okay, what, what is coming down the line and not just a Michigan and that running game, which is really impressive from a schematic standpoint, it's, they've got a lot in the bag. They've, they've got a lot for you to prepare for mm-hmm. and make it really complicated and, and challenging. Um, but Ohio state is also going to make it challenging to run the ball on them because they're going to, they're going to show you one thing and then they're going to do something different post snap. And then they're going to show you something completely different on the next snap and the next snap. And that's going to be, that's going to make life difficult. And I think that's the biggest difference from what we've seen in the past, which was really, Hey, we're a a four, three, you know, we, we run single high. We got these couple defenses. we got a few blitzes. We just think our, our mans are better than your man. So (laughs) come at us, what you got. And that that worked when it did, but then it didn't spectacularly. Right. Right. Exactly. (laughs) When you're, when your whole staff, when your whole roster was first rounders, (laughs) it was good. It was great. Then when it wasn't (laughs) now, you you, you said, I'm glad you mentioned the preparation because I was thinking back to one of our our postmortems with you last year. uh, And you were very clear that uh, this was the least prepared you had seen an Ohio state defense in a long, long, long mm-hmm. time last year's mm-hmm. defense. I mean that to me, you know, and I've been observing that as well. The arms race is part of it, but it wasn't like Ohio state didn't have uh, the, those quality control staffers and so on and so forth. Last year, the, the resources have been there. I'm just, I'm just blown away, I guess in a year's time. Cause I was kind of set up for this 
Knowles reboot to take a few years in the sense that, you know, they always talked about how much better his defenses got the longer he was somewhere that mm-hmm. it took a few years for people to really get up to speed. It doesn't feel like there's been a whole lot of a learning curve here for Ohio state's defense. Yeah. I mean, it looks to me like they're executing at a relatively high level. Yeah. Is, is that, is yeah. that your, your read as well? It is. It, and I think one that goes to McAllister, I think, you know, he's been praised by Knowles and the other staff members, um, you know, before I, I, I don't think you can undervalue or underestimate, I'm sorry, you can't overvalue or <laughs> overestimate how much having a player like that come with Knowles to be that voice at that position, position specifically, if it's a defensive tackle, sure. If it's a, a backup linebacker, okay. But with this system specifically and with how much is put on those three safeties, to have a guy come with Jim Knowles and to be there in the room with the players, not just not just when they're in the meeting room, but then in the locker room and the cafeteria, wherever it is, on the practice field next to him to say, no, 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 it's this. It's I'm doing this on this play, which means you're doing that. Oh, okay. And that helps at a tremendous level. I think – Additionally, if you look at the places Jim Doles has been, it's he'd made the most out of what he had, right? These were smaller schools. Oklahoma State was by far the biggest program he'd worked for, and he did. Eventually, he got that up to speed. But I think we all know that from a resource standpoint, Ohio State is significantly more prepared and more equipped than Oklahoma State. And so I think part of the deal with bringing him on was, hey, not only do you get the big check, but you get all the resources you could ever dream of. And with that comes big expectations. And so I don't think that he actually had the ability or the choice as much to even slow play this slow build it. It was, you've got a guy in McAllister, you've got five-star talent all over this roster. You've got every analyst, every QC coach, everything you could possibly want. Go teach it, go call the plays. And it's actually the ironic part is there's not a huge difference in terms of, you know, if you call the plays in Madden, right. If you had just been calling the defense in Madden, like we've all done, you know, over the years, the plays themselves are not that crazy different in what Jim Knowles is calling versus what Kerry Combs or Matt Barnes called. It's what play it's when they were called, it was where they were called essentially where you are on the field. So again, it wasn't like these players were learning, you know, a completely different language or learning how to play football again. It was, oh, I'm manning up on this play. Great. Got it. I know how to do that. I know how to, you know, read from the second receiver to the first. I did that in second, you know, ninth grade. We did that on our freshman team. I played safety my whole life. So I think that that part of it allowed for Jim Knowles to speed up, which also to your point, Andy, that's what infuriated me watching this last year because there was no reason why they couldn't do this. It wasn't as if Jim Knowles brought this secret playbook, you know, like in, in the water boy where Henry Winkler's got the secret playbook of plays like <laughs> that doesn't exist. <laughs> so watching that last year was so frustrating because you would just watch it and go, go down the street to upper Arlington and you'll see a more complex defense. Yeah, right. And you know, that was the most infuriating thing about it. And it's, well, the thing is though, is that I think a lot of people, I don't think they, put as much stock into coaching 
as they do into athletes. And I think that's that's what is so shocking to some people when they say like, oh, Ohio State was bad, now they're good. But the thing that I think we forget sometimes is that this exact same thing, not exact same thing, obviously not in the same way, but the improvement has happened before and drastically in recent memory, right? Like, I, I don't think Jeff Halfley comes in and just has this, you know, Michael's magic drink that he gives everybody and then all of a sudden they know how to play defense like it really is coaching and and like being able to teach something to people and and i think just Knowles is an unbelievable teacher and we've talked about that on the dubcast before i think what ryan day has done is he's very intentionally created a coaching staff that are teachers and i i think that means a lot to him that you have people who are able to like really get into the weeds on certain things and allow players to understand what they're asked to do. Um, and I know that's essentially the goal of every coaching staff, but it just, to me, it feels like he's, he's maybe more intentional about it than, than urban Meyer was. And I don't know, man. I mean, if you're looking at this, right. And, and you're talking about all the different things that Ohio state's going to see ignoring Michigan for a second, what would you say would be the most interesting challenge for them up until the Michigan game? Uh, Maryland's offense. Okay. Even, which, even which is, like assuming that, you know, their, their quarterback is still injured or anything like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a, a good disclaimer to point out. It, I, the, the backup and I'm trying to Billy Edwards or something, you know, he sounded like, you know, he sounded like an sec quarterback from the sixties, um, <laughs> you know, pre-segregation era, poor kid. I don't mean to pick on him. Um, but you know, we don't really know what he's going to be and what that offense is going to be with him. I think if, if Talia is back and healthy and that offense is healthy, that's the kind of offense that I'm worried about because it's set up to really stress those safeties. It's not going to just try to pound the rock in the middle of the field and play man ball. Like we're going to see this weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they're going to say, great, we're going to spread you out and we're going to, try to confuse the crap out of you and we're going to make you wrong. And we've got an accurate quarterback that can spread the ball, can get it out on time. That's what worries me um, more than any other offense in the big 10. I, I think Penn state has talent. I, I will always say this, that I think Penn state has the second most talented roster top to bottom in the big 10 most mm-hmm. years. Um, I, I actually think that may still even be the case. And this is not a, a diss to, to Michigan fans. It's, it's simply, they've got a lot of NFL players on that roster. Um, one is not at quarterback. Like, I think yeah. that's a big issue is yeah, that's there's the glaring, clearly the not an NFL deficiency. player. Yeah. There's not a, there's not a an NFL quarterback on that roster, or at least currently starting for that team. Maybe Drew Aller becomes it, but Sean Clifford ain't it guys. And as long as Sean <laughs> Clifford's there, I just don't know how Penn State pulls off an upset against this defense. I feel like we could probably do a whole segment on Jim Franklin as a coach and have some interesting conversations, but that's not our brand of uh, of of whiskey this week. Let's uh, let's circle back on something. I, I wanted to go back to the cornerback play for a minute because after. Last week's game on Twitter, I asked listeners of the Dubcast for things they loved during that game and things that they loathed. And the the most common response to things that people loathed was the play of the cornerbacks. But I was listening to uh, Dan Hope on uh, Real Beat Wednesdays, Real Pod Wednesdays this last week during the bye week, 
And I thought Dan made an interesting case. He said, actually, he said in his mind, as he's watching this team, feels like the cornerbacks, the, the issues there are not insurmountable because they've been where they were supposed to be. They just haven't necessarily completed the play. You know, they just haven't finished the tackle. They yep. haven't actually just brought the guy to ground. But it's not like it was last year where guys were just in the total wrong place in the field, didn't know their assignments, weren't sure what the hell they were supposed to be doing. This is just, hey, it's now time to, you know, kind of uh, buckle down, if you will, and finish the job, but that they're 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 where they're supposed to be, that these are not insurmountable issues. That that I thought was a really interesting take on the cornerback play and one that made me kind of stop and reevaluate how I was looking at at that position group. Is Dan on to something? Yeah. He, I couldn't agree with him more. I, I think what you've seen from this is the cornerbacks, at least in this system, is because of the stress that's placed on the safeties to be involved in both the run game and, you know, really taking taking care of the pass game in between the numbers, certainly in between the hashes, but in between the numbers, which is a lot of ground, especially in college football. That's a lot of ground. The corners basically have the from the numbers out right? Um, that's their job is don't get beat there because you don't have help. And so what that means is they end up playing a little bit softer, you know, certainly softer than we saw under Halfley when it was, Hey, we're going to man up because we got Jeff Okuda and Damon Arnett. So we don't care. We're going to man up. They're playing softer because they have to, because they don't have help. They don't have Jordan Fuller standing 30 yards downfield, reading the quarterback's eyes and waiting to pick off a, a deep post, right? Or a deep end. They don't have that help. So they've got to play a little bit more conservatively, conservatively. I can, I can speak. And <laughs> you know, what that leads to is when you're playing off, we see Ohio state do this every week. If you're going to be a cornerback playing off, what passes there? The back shoulder fade, right? That's there. And basically that's what Jim Knowles is saying. Hey, we're going to let you have that. We think that you can't score every play or every drive by just hitting back shoulder fades. We don't think you're good enough. We don't think your quarterback's good enough. We don't think your receivers are good enough. And for the most part, they haven't been. Yes, teams have completed a few. Michigan State had a few. They've got a, you know, a, a solid quarterback receiver tandem. They're right, but it certainly wasn't enough. You know, you can't throw 50 back shoulder fades a game. You can throw five. Uh, and then I think to the point of the tackling, that obviously can improve and it needs to get cleaned up. And you can tell watching Cam Brown's reaction, how frustrated the players must be. I don't think there's anybody in the world who's more frustrated about those plays than Denzel Burke, than Cam Brown, right? You know, they're clearly frustrated about this, and I would imagine that that's a point of emphasis, and it should be cleaned up. But that hasn't been – you haven't seen a lot of guys running, you know, you know just downfield past them. You're not seeing balls get caught over their head all that often. There have been one or two, but really not many. Do you think, I mean, a lot, I'm Burke in particular has taken a lot of heat. Do you, I mean, what do you think? I mean, you're right. It is, it is in a situation where they're just like running around like chickens with their heads cut off. But what do you think is maybe caused his regression or at least his appearance of having that kind of regression this season? Well, I mean, I don't think, I don't mean this to say the kid hasn't worked hard, but he's, he's just not big. And yeah. I think this is a point where he probably got pressed into service last year before he was physically ready. Right. You know, he was mm -hmm. a pretty skinny freshman and I, you know, I, again, this is not meant to knock him. I think he was pressed into service 
and he showed his talent. And I think that people went, yeah, we got to put this guy on the field because he's so talented and he's so good. But the weakness that he has is he's just not as physical. He's just not as physical of a football player. He's not as strong. I mean, you look at him next to Cam Brown and they look like two, like they played two different uh, positions, right? And, you know, Cam Brown has been there. He's worked on his body. Yes, he's had a bunch of injuries and that's been one of his issues. Um, but Denzel Burke, he just doesn't have the physicality, I think, at least it's at this point in his career, uh, which is probably as much about physical, you know, just his physical maturate, maturation as anything. I want to shift gears here a little bit because I, I think I could spend an hour just on this defense because I've been just blown away with the improvement. Uh, and and we we said all offseason long that they didn't have to be a top five defense to become a championship team. Uh, and you know what? Before it's all said and done with, I wouldn't be surprised if they become a top five defense. Just I've been that impressed with the the improvement. But I think we we do ourselves a disservice if we don't get your insight on this offense Looking at that side of the ball, uh, Dr. Jones, I'm of the mind that I didn't think Ohio State's offense could get that much better, and yet they have. <laughs> is this is this offense better than last year's offense, and if so, how and why? I'm, I'm really glad that you brought this up because I, I think as a fan base, and again, you guys know this just as well as anybody, the focus goes on to what's not perfect, right? What's right. not working. And I really, 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 really hope Ohio State fans are enjoying just how special this offense is. And I know there are people, you know, I, I said this when Justin Fields was finishing his career and, and I tweeted it and I had people say, well, Quinn, yours is coming. So it's going to always be great. And that didn't exactly work out. Um, and the point being, you don't know what's going to happen. Right. And, you know, if I told you Jackson Smith and Jigba is going to play 20 snaps by the midway point of the season, you'd probably have been pretty worried if I told yeah, you thing, thing, things August. are the sky is falling, right? Like how can right. this, this is going to be terrible. Yeah. Right. And all the injuries and, and the running backs and, and the revolving door that they've had with injuries and Julian Fleming and, and all this and that, I, I think the talent first off, first and foremost is extremely special. I, I think the talent in the receiver room, you don't need me to tell you how, how good Marvin Harrison is. I mean, that dude is an NFL receiver right now, right now he could line up and play in the NFL and be effective. I truly believe that his, his polish, his ability to bring the ball and his ability to win routes one-on-one -on -one, They've just got a dude and he's the first guy really at that X position since Michael Thomas that they've had, who can just say, you know what? We, nothing else is working on the offense. Let me, let me just go get you eight yards. I'm going to go win on a hitch. I'm going to go win on an out. I'm going to go win on a comeback. And the, the thing is they just haven't had to because everything else has worked out so well. And that's a credit to the offensive line. I don't think they've gotten quite enough shine. I think that is also People are waiting, I think, to see what happens when they play a Penn State, when they play a Michigan, before they really, you know, kind of give them credit, and that's fair. Uh, but, you know, I wrote about the game plan last week in East Lansing, and that was my favorite game plan that I think the Ohio State offense has had in a long time. And for those that didn't read it, um, really essentially what it was, was what they've done this year is they figured out how to run the same plays every time and every week with, 
you know, from a disguise and they figured out how to keep it so that the, uh, that the opposing team doesn't know what to expect because they are still running the exact same plays they've been running since JT Barrett was the quarterback, to be honest with you, since urban was the head coach, there's so much crossover in terms of the actual base concepts that they're running, but they're doing such a good job of disguising them with formations, with motions, shifts, moving this guy over to that spot. So he's blocking the edge versus blocking the backside, blah, 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 blah. We can get in all in the weeds, but that's what I think that they've done such a good job of is really making sure that, Hey, we're going to dress it up every single week and we're going to keep finding new ways and we're going to run a three tight end package and we're going to make it work, which this is Ohio state. They run, they don't run three tight ends. They haven't since Jim Trestle left the program. Right. And yet on Saturday, there they were trotting out three tight ends, motioning them in They're All of a sudden they're running an I formation with two tight ends and a fullback and they're finding ways to be effective. And I thought that was just so, such a subtle use of creativity that probably got missed by so many people who were understandably excited about Marvin Harrison dominating and CJ just dropping, you know, dimes all over the field. But that to me was, was the progression from this year to, you know, over last year was last year, they just signed up showed up and, you know, they had a bit of a young offense and they had those talented receivers. And and it was a little bit of the, we're just going to do what we do. And we know you can't stop us. And this year they're doing a much better job of disguising it. What's funny to me, I was thinking about this. Um, I know that people get, well, maybe not excited or they or confused, but they, they see a guy like Mitch Rossi show up on the field or in the stat line. Like, okay, that's weird. Like that guy just kind of showed up. And then it made me think this is back. God, I think it was like maybe 2000 and, 2004 against Michigan, but like when Brandon Joe was all of a sudden uh, a part of the offense, yep. we're like, what the hell just happened? And yep. like, I live for that when when Ohio yep. State is capable of pulling that out of their ass, and people are like, how how are you able to integrate a piece of the offense that we thought was completely like abandoned, where that nobody would ever touch ever, and then all of a sudden they they become like a functional and even at times a central part of what's happening. And like, you know, if you look at Ohio state's um, what they're able to do in the red zone, right. Their conversion percentage, specifically how many times they're getting touchdowns. I think they're like 90% or some insane amount uh, in the red zone this year. Uh, I think it's in large part. And and again, this is, this is where I really going to lean on your expertise, but I, I feel like they're, doing things that they haven't done in the past with guys like Mitch Rossi in those types of situations. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find really fascinating and exciting to watch. Yeah. I think that it's, they're showing a little bit more flexibility in terms of not necessarily making these guys do the thing that they're absolutely the best at on every play. And it's, it's really taking a long-term view. Um, And you know, there was a snap, you know, I put it, I took a screenshot and, and put it in, in my piece last week where CJ's in, in the, the shotgun and on his right is sitting in a fullback position is Mitch Rossi. And to his left is Xavier Johnson, a walk-on <laughs> receiver who's lined up right. tailback, right? Like exactly. If I, had, if I had shown you that and said, this happened in the second quarter of an away game at Michigan state. And I showed you that in, in July, you would have been freaking out and be like, what happened? Something <laughs> terrible must've happened. Why isn't Travion Henderson there? What's going on? Blah, 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 blah. blah. Who is Xavier Johnson? Right, exactly. 
recruiting rankings, this, yada, yada. And I think what they're realizing as a staff, and I, this is a credit to them, is how can we throw off not only the scouting reports, but how can we put a guy in a place that makes you go, wait, what? Just for a split second as a defense. And even if Xavier Johnson's not the best person to take a toss sweep from the shotgun, because he's not, you have Trevin Henderson, you have Dalen Hayden, you have other guys there, but because you're making the defense go, wait, what? For just that snap, that, that snap second, you know, all of a sudden Xavier Johnson's able to pick up seven yards on a toss sweep, right? Like that, that's the stuff that I think they're, they're recognizing and realizing we don't just have to hand the ball off to Mayan Williams or Henderson. We don't just have to throw the ball to Marvin Harrison, to JSN, to Buka, whoever it might be. We don't have to make a Buka run a, a bubble screen every play. We're going to make him block a couple times a game. He, I thought Ibuka has been a phenomenal blocker this year. He did a lot in that Michigan State game. He was, in a lot of ways, one of the queens on the chessboard, right, where it was, hey, this play, you're going to run a, a deep slot fade that goes for a 60-yard touchdown. The next play, you're going to motion across, and you're going to have to block a defensive end. That's your reward. And, and he did it, and he did it really well. And I think that's going to pay dividends later because I think one of the more overlooked pieces of how things work in, in this sport is – all the opponents on this, you know, especially for the rest of the, the regular season, they spent all of January through July watching every snap that Ohio State took last season and the season before and charting it and saying this is their tendency. They do this out of that formation when they got this personnel group in, they're going to do this concept or that concept and yada, yada, yada. And what they're doing this whole regular season is saying, hey, all those tendencies that we had last year, we're going to break them. So that when Jim Harbaugh or James Franklin or whoever it might be, they look at the scouting report on Monday morning of of Ohio State week, they're going to go, wait a second. They're running the ball 50% of the time out of this look. It was 98% last year. What's going on? And now all of a sudden they've got to spend the whole week or they've got to spend, you know, a couple of days figuring out, wait, what is Ohio State doing? We don't have a plan. We got to, we got to figure it out. Maybe they're going to do this. Maybe they're not. And I think that's really valuable. And that's something that I think they learned from the Michigan game last year. What they ran in the Michigan game last year for a lot of reasons, the guys were sick. They ran the vanilla stuff and Michigan was ready. I'm looking at this week's opponent, Iowa. And I'm, I'm finding it interesting because on the one hand, I'm sort of expecting Ohio state to just go crazy because Iowa's not going to score very many points on Ohio state. <laughs> and, and yet this is the uh, most efficient defense in the country, according to SB plus um, looking and seeing they're allowing 9.8 points per game over their first uh, six games of the season. And yet if I use SB plus as my barometer, Ohio State should be about a 22-point favorite in the horseshoe. What kind of defensive challenge does Iowa present to this offense you've just been describing so well? They're really fundamentally sound. They are less concerned about what I just talked about and the the tendencies and the schemes and this. They are the old school, let's line up and play ball, and they're really good at it. You know, for everything we want to talk about, how poorly coached the offense is, and I actually think most of that is really just on the on the quarterback and lack of development there and lack of receivers who can win. 
which is a totally different conversation. Um, they're so well prepared and so well coached defensively. Their guys are never in the wrong position. They tackle well. They beat blocks. You know, I, I think the best corollary um, that I can make is you guys remember the Nebraska game last year where Absolutely. Ohio State was expected to blow out Big Red and and all this and that. And it was kind of just like, yeah, the offense looks a little flat at times. And man, there's these these linebackers just all over the place. They're making they're making plays and they're keeping it's the third quarter and they're still kind of in it. It's like a 10 point, 13 point game. That's the fear you have against this Iowa defense because they've got enough talent, especially in the front seven, especially against the run to make, they don't care what you're running. They're just good football players and they're extremely fundamentally sound and they know where they need to be. So it doesn't matter if it's a jet sweep or a toss sweep or an outside zone handoff, they're going to defend it the same way and they're going to defend it well. Um, And that's going to make, that's very frustrating, especially in the modern game where you don't see a lot of defenses like that, right? It's so much more scheme dependent and so forth. Where Ohio State has a huge advantage is Iowa just doesn't have the athleticism in the secondary, in my opinion, to hang with Ohio State. You know, as we talked about how special this group of wide receivers is, even without their best wide receiver, there's enough talent outside on the wide receiver group that I expect there to be deep balls. I expect this to be a week where we see Julian Fleming catch yet another deep post because he runs right past the safety who can't run past, you know, keep up with him. That's where I see this, this offense really taking advantage. And especially given the issues Iowa has offensively, if you get a, a lead of two touchdowns, game's over. Right. <laughs> and that defense, they're, they're going to, they're, they're going to know it. Everyone in the stadium is going to know, Hey, if, if Iowa goes down by 14 points, it's done. I'm looking, gonna, go, go ahead, John. I'm just going to say, that's just got to be the worst feeling in the world as someone who would pay. I'm just trying to imagine the logistics of someone paying, you know, like, you know, 60, $70 to go to a game, pay $30 to park or whatever. It's really your entire day. And then you get there. And then, you know, six minutes into the first quarter, like, all right, game's over. Let's go home. <laughs> sucks. It sucks. It sucks for Iowa. And I, I want them to be better than they are, but it's it's kind of amazing that they're so inept on offense. Nepotism for the win or loss in this case. Yeah. Uh, I want to finish up here with a couple things, Dr. Jones. One, the, let's treat this like the lightning round. So, so quick answers and, and uh, then we'll, we'll uh, say thanks and bid you on your way until the next time we get to uh, dig into your wisdom, but lightning round here. Uh, how concerned should the average Ohio state fan be about the challenge Michigan brings to the table at the end of the regular season? Short answer is they should be, they should pay attention. It should be, it's a real, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. I would say it's an eight out of 10. Looking at the playoff field, which just got more interesting with Tennessee taking down Alabama for the first time in something like 20 years. Uh, What are your best guesses for this year's final four and who wins the national championship? Uh, I think Ohio State makes it. I think that's that's pretty safe to say. I think we actually might be in a place where, for once, the Big Ten could legitimately 
have two teams. I think Michigan's going to come into that game undefeated. I think Ohio State's going to come into that game undefeated. If it's a close game and both teams look look good, the loser could very well get in because I think Georgia is going to beat Tennessee and then Alabama is going to beat Georgia. And you're just going to have this everyone beats everyone thing in the SEC where no one really knows who the best team is there. And then lingering out West, I actually, I, I believe in uh, USC, despite what happened, um, despite what happened in Utah, they didn't have Jordan Addison, the transfer from Pitt who won the Blitnikoff last year. They could, you know, eventually they, they, they let Utah back in the game as Ohio state fans know Utah, they can come back and get you. They can, they'll, they'll play you tight in a big game. Um, and, and so I can see a world where it's the sec winner, most likely Alabama, USC, Ohio State, and then the question is, is it a Georgia, Tennessee, or Michigan? Last question. Current MVP of the team for you uh, and the unsung hero of this Ohio State squad through six games. Ooh, great question. Um, I, I know I said that Ronnie Hickman and, Tal- and Tanner McAllister, so th- those are kind of the obvious answers. Um, and it, but I will say that I think um, CJ is playing at an unbelievable level, and you cannot deny that. I think he's going to be taking home a statue from New York City in mid-December, barring an injury, and hopefully he stays healthy for, for many reasons. Um He's his ball placement, his accuracy, his anticipation. He's doing everything that you could ask of a quarterback, and he's doing it at an absurdly high rate. So, while the ba- the quality of backups in Kyle, you know, the Kyle McCord is, you know, doesn't necessarily make me feel like the 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 team's success hinged entirely on CJ's play and his health. I think you could be in a position where Kyle McCord could could take this team places. Um, so I think, but I still think CJ is the MVP because of what he's produced. He's just been incredible. I think the unsung hero, um, you know, we talked about the safeties. We talked about the linebackers. We talked about the defensive line. Everybody knows about Mike Call. Um, you know, I, it's weird to say, but I feel like the tight ends have just done a ton. And I don't mean that from a pass catch. You know, Cade Stover had a couple really nice games as a receiver and then didn't see the ball really again for two weeks. And I think that's a credit to that room, to what they did in Michigan State, where they just took on a lot of responsibility. They're making this run game really diverse and really creative. So it's it's really two unsung heroes with Stover and Rossi and even, even G. Scott getting, getting some love there. I think those guys are really a crucial part of what Ohio State has become this season, and we probably don't give them enough praise. We have definitely been singing the praises of uh, at least our at least our favorite farm boy uh, in Kate Stover on the Dubcast. <laughs> I I gotta be I gotta be shouting out for uh, the farm kids of the state. Uh, and I lied. I will ask you one last question. This will be the bonus question. C.J. Stroud, where does he fall in your estimation of Ohio State quarterbacks? To me, he's putting together. I, I so far one of the most impressive seasons, certainly in my lifetime of an Ohio state quarterback, but what's your, what's your spicy hot take on where CJ Stroud falls in the Ohio state pants on. I, I think that the answer to that question in December will be at the top. I think right now you're still going to have people who will choose 
you know, fields. I thought, I thought he doesn't, he doesn't run the ball, Kyle. I don't know if you know that he didn't, he I doesn't know, run the ball. I'm aware. I'm aware. <laughs> and that, that for a long, you know, before the season, that was the, that was the tiebreaker. I, I have been on the record that I think fields is the best quarterback to play at Ohio state. We'll talk about the bears later. Um, but what he did at Ohio state, I thought he brought more to the table than any quarterback um, and more consistently than any quarterback in the history of the program. CJ is saying it doesn't matter that I can't run the ball. I'm doing more regardless. His efficiency is, it's truly incredible. And he makes every throw. I thought what he did in the Notre Dame game probably was overlooked because the stat line wasn't super pretty, Mm -hmm. but he made a ton of good decisions. He essentially changed the game plan on the fly when, when, you know, Smith and Jigba got hurt. I, I think, I think it's going to be one of these things where in the moment, no Ohio state fan realizes it. And then, from here on forward, they're going to be telling their kids, I remember the CJ Stroud season. He was so much better than everyone. I wish you could have seen it. We all knew at the time and, and that's okay. <laughs> that's how the sport works. Uh, but I, I really truly believe that, you know, the second that he gets that statue in New York, and I know this is premature, but I, uh, you know, again, assuming he stays healthy, I don't see a way that he doesn't lift that statue. Um, you know, gets that award. I think from that moment on, everyone's going to say, yeah, he's the best quarterback to ever play in Scarlet and Gray. And I, I will be one of those people. Great place to end to Kyle Jones. Thank you for being a part of the extended Dubcast family folks. If you're not reading film study each week, you are doing yourself a great disservice and we'll let, let's get, I don't think Ohio state's going to have any reason to have a post-mortem Kyle, uh, the rest of the way out. Let's leave it at that. So we'll bring you back to talk about more happy things uh, between now and the end of the season. Great stuff as always. Uh, appreciate you coming on the Dubcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Always fun to be here. All right, Johnny, uh, let's take this opportunity to shift to our favorite segment of the program. Well, second favorite segment of the program this week since the uh, film study segment uh, was was clearly the, the best thing to happen. In the, uh, but we'll, we will have a very close second with Ask Us Anything, which like the Dubcast in its entirety is brought to you by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com, hats, t-shirts, stickers, et cetera, et cetera. You can find it at drygoods.11warriors.com. What do we have in the mailbag this week, my friend? Well, we remind you that you can ask us literally anything by sending us questions to dubcast at 11warriors.com. And by the way, this is so we'll start off with Derek, who doesn't have a question, but just wants to say excellent interview slash guest. I assume he's also talking about Kyle Jones, but he says Hartsock was awesome and you guys did a great job. Thank you, Derek. I appreciate that. And Hartsock was awesome. He's he's a really, really fun guy to talk to. I enjoyed that interview quite a bit. Um, thank you so much for uh, coming on Ben Hartsock, who I know is now a regular, I'm kidding. I don't know if he listens to this or not. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't put it past him. I, he, I think he's, uh, I was just super impressed with his depth of knowledge of, of things. So I would not put it past him to be a, a loyal listener now of the dubcast. So if so, assuming so shout out to, to, uh, our new BFF. That's right. Our new best friend forever. This one's from Kevin who says, guys, which injury, or excuse me, injuries at which position group make you most worried for him? It is the tailbacks. The most think. Run that by me again. So injuries at which position group? Make oh, injuries, you injuries. Most, okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, you know, it, it, that's a, this is kind of funny now that we're talking, if you'd asked me that question before we had Kyle on the show, yeah, I probably would have been like, yeah, amen, brother. I'm sweating bullets about it. But 
you know, after listening to him talk about just the way that they have been able to plug and play guys because of the artistry that Ryan Day. Yeah. I mean, it's weird too. Cause like a guy like Dallin Hayden, who is not a yeah, person he, I knew was on the team until he <laughs> like, goes in there and he's, he's, he's knocking at the door of a hundred yards, you know, in his first game out there. Like it's, and you know, what's wild is that that was the same deal with, with Mayan too. When yes, he got it. Yes. Nobody knew who the hell chop was. And then you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> This yeah. guy's running over dudes. He's running around like what the hell? And now, and then people are debating whether he's the true starter. And so it's it's kind of wild. Yeah, and that's and so I'm I'm hedging here a little bit because I want to say yes because I feel like that is such an important position group uh, in this offense because that that run game sets up you know just some really amazing things that CJ is able to do. Yeah. In the passing game, you know, we talked with Ben Hartsock about play action and, uh, you know, what they've been able to do. And you just heard Kyle Jones talking about what the tight ends are doing there. So I want to say yes. Um, but, but, but I, but I still am concerned about how thin they are at cornerback. I, I know yeah. we kind of talked about some of that with, with Jones there and the fact that those guys, you know, we talked about the Denzel Burke thing, right? Uh, I talked about, that Dan Hope's point in in his podcast this week that the the guys are there they just got to finish the plays mm-hmm. uh make the tackle get the guy on the ground that sort of thing and the, and they've had some good opponents in in individual cases some one or two individual wide receivers who are pretty good and so on so I, I I'm probably still more likely to say I'm concerned just with how thin they are at at cornerback where it feels like apparently they can roll three and four deep at running back and everything's okay. Right. But I, but I would say I'd feel a lot better if I knew Mayan Williams was hundred percent healthy. Yeah, that's, that would be my uh, answer as well. Um, and he also adds, he says, by the way, Johnny, I am forwarding the threat level articles to a friend of mine who graduated from that school up North. Uh, they're well done. It's a way of me twisting the knife a little <laughs> it starts to get us talking. Well, I'm glad I can help you with that. Um, uh, you know, it's it's the the reactions to threat level are always interesting to me because, uh, you know, as I've said, they're intermittently funny or amusing, um, but it's it's something that I feel is my duty to do, um, just because you know they are obviously such an omnipresent force in Ohio State fandom. I think you you have to pay attention to Michigan, and I know you know other sites and um, people kind of have their own thing, which is good. I think everybody should be keeping kind of a wary eye on the Wolverines as the season goes through. So this was th- this past week was a really interesting one because they just beat the absolute hell out of Penn State. And, um, you know, people are kind of poo-pooing Penn State a little bit, which is fair. Um, Sean Clifford's not good. And they really didn't have anybody behind them to help out. Um, but that Michigan running game, that, that's something that I think we'll have to revisit um, in the next month here because it is really what they're able to do with two guys who are really kind of similar runners. Um, and they're keeping them both fresh. It is, in a lot of ways, kind of a mirror of what's going on at Ohio State. So I'm... I'm curious to see how that kind of evolves, how that narrative evolves um, as the season goes on. And yeah, so I'm glad you're reading it. Thank you for for the kind words. Um, all right, so this is from our good friend Alvin. What is your best value slash discounted goods or service you purchased that you are most proud of? <laughs> Why don't you take that one first? That's, that's... Oh, yeah. Well, this one's easy. So I, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I go thrift shopping a lot. I enjoy it. I don't like paying full market <laughs> price for clothes. It's just something that bothers me a lot. Um, so I, I try to, to to get my clothes at a discount if I can. Heck yeah. Um, 
And I was at a, I think a Volunteers of America, and I found a Columbus Blue Jackets jersey, like one of the original ones, you know, that they had in the early 2000s for $10. And I'm like, well, surely this can't be a real Columbus. And it is. I checked. I verified. It's got That's all awesome. the tags, everything. So I got that thing that retails. It still retails for like 120 bucks. I got it for 10 and I was pretty damn proud of myself. So I, you know, I've got a couple other uh, blue jackets or slash hockey jerseys in my closet, but I am very proud of that original purchase. That's, that's one that I'm, that was a steal of a deal. I was very proud of. That's righteous. You know, I'd love to find a, a store like that as I, I would love to find like a classic starter jacket from my, my, Oh my I, God. I, I had a Cincinnati Bearcat starter jacket when I was like 10 I was the most awkward looking kid in the universe, but that was the most badass jacket anyone's ever had on the planet. It was I had great. the the Charlotte Hornets, like the that, one that was well that and okay, so you had two choices in Southwest, right? You you had <laughs> and it wasn't the Bearcats or the Bengals or Ohio State. It was Charlotte Hornets because they had the sick color scheme, right? Yes. You had yep. the, the teal and then the purple yep. or the Dallas Cowboys. And if you had one of oh those God. two starter jackets, Johnny, Johnny, those were, I, I owned two starter jackets, my entire childhood. And those were the two. I'm telling I you, I know, dude, I know. <laughs> oh my it was God. That is Dallas hilarious. Cowboys. It was either Dallas Cowboys or Charlotte Hornets. Those were the two. And if you had either one of those, you were just like, God, I can't shit. believe you were awesome. you just, we, and, and listeners, you have to know, we did not talk about, we never talk about these ahead of time. No, that is so funny that you, those are the two year old. Cause those are, the, those Dallas are Cowboys. the exact, I had the, the, the version of the Hornets jacket, that Hornets jacket came in a couple different color schemes. The mm. one that I had was the one where black was kind of the base color. It was the pullover oh, okay. that had the, you know, hoodies today, you know, this is kind of before hoodies were a thing but you have the pocket that goes all the way across the of course, of your yeah. belly, right? Like that was the starter jacket that I had was the pullover type. Um, and it was the black base shell with the teal and the, and the purple. Um, and that, that, that pouch pocket, you know, it was like a little pouch pocket over top of the hand warmer pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like you had a yeah. fanny pack, but it wasn't, that. I don't know. Kids today don't know. You could live in those jackets. Like you, could, you, you just could. like puff them up. Uh, you, you want to wear that darn thing like eight months out of the year because oh it God. was the coolest, you know, it, the word drip was not in the lexicon then, but you wore that, you had drip, you know, or however yeah, the kids say that these days. Yeah, I'd love to find one of those. They, I don't know that they made them in my size in those <laughs> days. Uh, yeah, it was harder to find. Anyway, yeah, I, I'd love to find that. Um, oh, that'd be sick. Yeah, good stuff. That's really funny. Right. Uh, and then finally, this is another one from Kevin. Uh, who scares you more at this point, Penn State or Michigan? Oh, Michigan, um, clearly. Yeah, Michigan. Yeah, Penn, and, and the thing Penn is, Penn State I mean, gives me was, no cause for concern whatsoever. Yeah, and this was asked before the, yeah, the Michigan, yeah, yeah. Uh, Penn yeah. State game. But, you know, the thing is, is like Michigan, and, and I've got the threat level at severe right now, and it, right it is now. it should be at severe because they beat Ohio State last year, yes. and they've done nothing but prove that they really haven't fallen off at all since then. And if anything, they've improved in some ways. Um, it, it's interesting because <laughs> you read the comments on the article, and some people are like saying, oh, you're a big wuss. I can't believe you're that scared of it. And other people are like, yeah, I'm terrified. It's awful. They're <laughs> I, I feel like so, it has to be generational because those of us of a certain I think so age too. – that is, you know, we will any time that Michigan looks like, you know, they could possibly be back. We automatically revert to the Cooper era. We're like, right. yeah, they're gonna, it's gonna be terrible. This is the worst thing there, and and our our John Cooper PTSD comes back in full force. 
but if you're younger than say 30 mm -hmm. and you miss that as your formative experience, then yeah, then all you know is the 20 years of domination since Jim Tressel showed up in Columbus. Yeah, it, it's really kind of fascinating to watch um, this Michigan team. And the other thing is, it, it's so unexpected. I think that's what's most irritating about all of this is because I really thought that I had Jim Harbaugh and Michigan in general pegged, and I'm pretty sure most of their fans did too. And and that here's the irritating thing. It's not that they're good. It's not that Jim Harbaugh has kind of maybe righted the ship and, and made some good decisions. That doesn't bother me. I actually find that interesting and, and worth paying attention to and writing about. And so that's, that's a relief for me because one of the worst things about threat level was trying to explain in multiple ways, how they're being like boring in the same way every week. So for them to change and, and do things, that's, that's fun for me. Um, what's annoying is the Michigan fans who are acting as if they believed in this all along and that they are super, they love Jim Harbaugh. He's the best. I'm like, Dude, how how can you have that short of a memory to where you could even be thinking two years ago where everybody wanted this guy fired and justifiably so because he was trash. And now you're like, we believe in him 100%. Like, why? He tried to leave over the winter. He tried to peace out. He tried to dipsy doodle on your asses. And now you're like, oh, no, he's the greatest. I'm like, come on. You've, you've got to have a little bit more skepticism than that. And, and I think part of it too is just because Michigan has been so downtrodden and, and not lived up to expectations for the past several decades. And I get that, but it, it's the complete and other faith in success that they have right now without really having won much of anything is kind of mind boggling to me to watch this for Michigan fans. Cause Ohio state fans in the same situation would just be looking around the corner for somebody to like stab in the back. Like that's, that's, and, and maybe that's just the attitudes of the, of the fan bases, but like, unless Ohio state wins a national championship, Ohio state fans are never, you know, confident in success. And, and I think that's, that's a good thing. I don't think you should be, I think you should always be trying to figure out a way to improve, but Michigan is super excited to just kind of sit on those laurels and, you know, kind of hope that we'll let them coast in the college football playoff. And it's just, it's irritating. And I don't like it. I don't like yeah, it. The, the Michigan thing that just blows my mind. I mean, you said it a minute ago and it's exactly right. Is that th this guy was on the hot seat and out the door. Yeah on the hot seat and, and justifiably so right 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 and and then all of a sudden <laughs> and he made some great i mean look and, and to his credit to harbaugh's credit he made some great coaching hires yeah he decided to to go against his natural inclination his natural coaching philosophy when it came to offensive game planning all that kind of stuff and i mentioned this in threat level this week you know last year they were really kind of a trestle ball team right where they they played ball control and they you know leaned on a really good defense with some really amazing defensive ends and did some things where it was like, all right, they're not going to score a million points, but they're going to, they're going to try to be, um, you know, that, that no mistake team that is going to beat you through consistency. That's not what this team is. That's not what the Michigan team is this year. They're scoring a bunch of points. They're highly efficient on offense. And it really is what Brady Hoke wanted the team to be, mm -hmm. which is like, they're just going to shove the ball down your throat and watch you choke in your own spit. And, and that's, and that's really what they do that. They, they have this running game that is just unbelievably good and they're super efficient. And, you know, they, in the first half against Penn state, 
they stalled out within the Penn State 10 yard line three times and had to settle for field goals. And it didn't matter because you anyone watching that game knew Michigan had that completely under control because it wasn't like they just got the ball at the 20 yard line and then could only advance at 10 yards. Those were all the result of like 75 yard drives that they were in complete control until they kind of like, you know, jacked it up at the end there. But that's what makes them so scary is that they held the ball for almost 47 minutes of game time (laughs) against Penn state. That was their time of possession. It was like 47 minutes. It's crazy. Like that, look, or not 40, sorry, 42 minutes. I apologize. 42 minutes. So still, that's still crazy. Insane. In a 60 minute game, they had 42 minutes of possession. And, and normally the possession set doesn't matter. But in that case, it's a result of the fact that they just controlled the game from start to finish. And it was so they're they're tough. And um, it really is going to be kind of that. Um, those two very different play styles are going to be at featured. uh on the 26th of November. And I cannot wait to watch it. That's going to be such a crazy hype game. Yeah. It's going to be insane. And so that is the, uh, that's, that's ask us anything for this week. Thank you so much for sending those in. We really appreciate it. We'll keep answering them. All right. Quick, uh, quick final note here before we wrap this thing up for Ohio state players named a mid season watch list for the Lombardi trophy. Uh, we talked about some of these guys earlier, Tommy Eichenberg, uh, Zach Harrison, and then on the offensive side of the ball, Paris Johnson Jr. and Dewan Jones. Uh, the Lombardi Award, of course, all honors football's best linemen. Uh, the linebackers and inline tight ends are also eligible for the award. Apparently, uh, there are four different schools, Ohio State being one of them, who have four players on the watch list. Uh, it's a big list at this point in the season, but I think the thing that you know is really interesting is to see who is getting noticed at this point in the season for these national awards We've had cj stroud up for the golden arm award and there's several other guys uh who do you think johnny as we wrap up is most likely we had kyle jones earlier say cj stroud is going to be hoisting the heisman trophy at season's end so setting that one aside is maybe the low-hanging fruit who do you think is most likely to walk away with national level hardware this season whether we're talking about Harrison Jr. maybe is a Blitnikoff kind of guy. You're looking at these Lombardi Trophy uh, final hard. guys on the watch list. Who do you who do you like at this stage for a big one? I don't. I mean, it, the most likely I think is probably Eichenberg, just because one of the things that they really like to see are guys who are productive on. Um, on teams that win a lot you know what i mean like and i was actually looking at this the other day like you look at the actual like total tackles like eichenberg doesn't have like a trillion tackles or anything like that but i think he's got enough to where he could be in the conversation and he's not playing on a team that is like uconn right like the number two the number two uh tackler in the country is is uconn number one's odu unlv akron like nobody cares about these guys because they're not playing on teams that are nationally relevant um Eichenberg is and so I think he'll he'll get pub because of that I don't think he'll necessarily win but I, I would say of the the players I think he'll probably as a guy who would you know when they start doing these end of season narratives are like all right who's emblematic of the team right who who do who represents that team well in terms of like attitude and, and whatnot and I think Eichenberg would be that dude for the defense so I, I would have to say him although CJ Stroud is is you know out in front by a country mile when it comes yeah. to that so totally, totally agree. I think the interesting thing will be how many of those national awards does CJ Stroud walk home with? All I would right. say a lot. 
Yeah, I think so, too. All right. Good show, my friend. This time next week, we'll be talking about Ohio State's performance against Iowa as they return to the horseshoe. Stay tuned for that. So what do you what do you think, Andy? What would be your prediction for? So, I mean, this is really interesting. Uh, Some of the guys were talking about this early in the week on Slack, looking at, you know, the betting line, what what spread looks like, uh, you know, the over under. This could be a low scoring affair, kind of the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. When you look at Ohio State's offense versus this Iowa defense. I, I think, yes, Iowa is the number one rated defense in SP+. Plus. As I mentioned earlier, they've been uh, holding opponents to an average of 9.8 points per game. They've been extremely good. However, comma, Iowa hasn't faced an offense anything like this Ohio State offense. So I think it's going to be a really long day for this defense just getting picked apart, pounded. I I heard what Kyle Jones said earlier about them being very sound, very disciplined, very well coached fundamentally. I just don't think they've come up against a hurricane like what Ryan Day is about to throw at them. And that's going to really test them. Plus, here's the other thing. Their offense is not going to be on the field against Ohio State very long. Their offense is atrocious. It is putrid. Uh, I mean, look at the stinkers they've had their on a regular basis offensively. They are as inept as it gets. As good as they are defensively, they are equally bad offensively. Their offense is offensive. Uh, SP Plus gives it, you know, basically a 22-point edge to Ohio State at home. I think I like that. I might even like them to cover a little fatter spread than that. And you know I hate spreads that get upwards of 29, 30 points. It really sure. bothers me. I'd hate to bet on it. But I, I could absolutely see this one coming down to be, you know, like a 42-10 kind of game because I give Iowa's offense next to no credit. I think anything they score is going to come when the game is already well out of hand. Yeah, and that that would have been that that was my exact prediction as well and i hope i hope we we tag team this yet again and once again get the uh, beat everybody else on the staff in the prediction game yeah we've that's... actually been doing pretty well in recent weeks i think so too our, our our pick so yeah let's yeah. let's let's uh, let's do it again i like it i like it and we'll uh, we'll own up next week if we if we got it right or we got it wrong call us out in the comments let's hear it until then i'm andy I'm Johnny. Thanks for joining us on the 11 Dubcast.